What's up, Rich Friends? Welcome back to another episode of Net Worth and Chill with me, your host, Vivian Tu, aka Your Rich BFF and your favorite Wall Street Curly. And today, I'm going to teach you how to buy drugs. <laughs> and now that I have your attention, I want you to delete the visual of us at a rave taking random pills from your head. I mean real drugs, like pharmaceutical prescription drugs for long-term conditions, illnesses, and health concerns. And maybe you're uber healthy and don't need any medication, but most people do. In fact, in a recent 2023 civic science poll, we found that the number of U.S. adults who report taking at least one prescription medication per day is now 70%, over two-thirds of the population. And if you do use prescription medication, I'm sure you've had a similar experience to the one I had a week ago. You show up to your local drugstore, you tell the pharmacist what you're trying to pick up, and the 30 seconds it takes them to ring up your item and tell you the price is the longest 30 seconds of your life. Why? Because it seems like the drugs we need to stay healthy keep getting more expensive. And I literally have stress about whether or not I should pay for the drugs and actually take them or if I should just skip on the cost. Whether it's insulin, antibiotics for a cough that just won't go away, or even acne medication, you don't have to be a doctor to know that drug pricing is one of the most contentious topics out there. How much should something that could improve your health or maybe even literally save your life cost? To help answer this big question, give us a Pharma 101, talk through drug pricing and what we can do to pay less, I've invited an expert and personal friend. She's the CEO of Roshan Pharmaceuticals, active angel investor and advisor, and author and speaker. Everyone, please welcome Hitha Palapu. Thank you so much for having me. Of course. It's so good to see you again. And it is so exciting to talk about drugs today. When we met at that women's dinner a little bit back, you made a really bold and transparent comment about how you got into the pharma industry. Can you share that with us? I got into the pharmaceutical industry, and let me be Frank, thanks to good old nepotism. Hitha <laughs> <laughs> is a nepo baby, guys. <laughs> I am. I admit it. Um, I got my job because of nepotism. My father assures me that I have my job because I'm actually good at it. <laughs> and he would have had no problem cutting that cord if I sucked. My father credits me as a reason he became a pharmaceutical entrepreneur. For most of his career, from the 70s into the early 2000s, he had worked at the largest biopharmas in the country and in the world. Pfizer, GlaxoSmithKline, Bristol-Myers. And then he'd also worked at generics and enhanced generics companies like Sandoz and then drug delivery technology companies called Sonus, Thera Sonus Therapeutics. When I joined college, apparently my essay for entrance inspired him because he said, I didn't know I was as impressive. The prompt was, fill in this box with something that explains who you are. And I put a picture of me and my parents from when I was eight years old in a classical Indian dance costume and told their story. He's truly the most impressive person I've ever met. He lost his hearing when he was 10 years old and put himself through school with, one, the help of his friends who gave him notes and tutored with him and studied with him, but also through good old lip reading. He had no hearing aids at the time from elementary school through graduating from IIT Bombay with his master's in chemistry, one of the world's most prestigious universities. That's crazy because school is hard enough as is, but imagine like you can't hear and there's no aids essentially to help you that the way there would be now, like in college classes where you have someone who may be able to sign what's going on. Like he had none of those resources. Yeah, and he didn't even learn sign language. So when he came to this country he, in the 70s, he finally got hearing aids. And the first job he ever got was actually at Pfizer um, as a bench chemist. And he started 
started with the same at the same starting point as people with high school degrees in the United States, mm. but quickly worked really hard. And I also think he's just one of the most brilliant people I've ever met to go get his PhD at University of Iowa and then move up the ranks in industry. So at the end of 2003, he was thinking about what his next step would be. He was almost 60 and he actually was thinking about retiring because so many of his friends were. But what he identified was an unmet need in industry. He had worked on a number of specialty pharmaceuticals, injectables, and in the cancer space, where he said, I don't think these were formulated the way they should have been. I think we got quick and lazy with the formulation and some of the excipients, so the chemicals used to solubilize and stabilize the active, cause more side effects I than have, the drug itself. I have a quick question. Can you explain that? Like, yeah. what was the word you used? Excipients. Excipients? AKA the inactives in the drug. Oh, so, so like just like the the powdery parts that like squish all the actual active ingredients together or they, so when you think about a form, drug formulation you think about let's just for simplicity's sake pick aspirin. Mm-hmm. Aspirin which is actually acetyl salicylic acid. Aspirin's <laughs> actually a brand name which most people don't know. That active drug is too unstable to just put into a pill form. Oh, by itself. Okay. So it requires other inactive ingredients to stabilize it. So mm. when we think about, you know, kind of this clean movement in our skincare and our food and inactives or fillers getting a bad rap, the thing is, is you can't verify the stability or the solubility, making sure you're getting that right concentration for an effective therapeutic um, effect without these inactive ingredients. Mm. So excipients is the the pharma term. Inactives might be a little bit easier to understand. And these are really important because sometimes some of these excipients, especially at the levels that are in chemotherapy drugs and whatnot, can cause their own set of side effects that Mm -hmm. require steroid or antihistamine pre-medication. So he said, you know what? I'm going to leave my chief scientific officer job at a publicly traded company, start a small lab in India, and actually try my hand at reformulating some of these things. If it doesn't work out, I can always get another job or I can retire. Like, Hitha's grown and she'll be fine. And, you know, what he told my mom is when he said he wanted to do this, she said, we started our lives together in a two-bedroom apartment in Groton, Connecticut. We can always go back to that two-bedroom apartment in Groton, Connecticut, which I just think is the best form of partnership and sign Mm -hmm. of partnership and helping one person go and chase big dreams. Mercifully, my dad was actually quite successful. (laughs) (laughs) A number of the drugs that he had developed to an early stage, so he developed a better formulation and he was able to manufacture it at a five liter scale, which is usually a pretty good indicator that you can manufacture it to commercial scale, outlicensed them to other companies. And Mm. so he and a friend he had met in one of his consulting projects decided to form a company called Cydos, specifically focused on this, identifying hospital injectable and cancer drugs that could benefit from being reformulated. So when you think about chemotherapy drugs that are prepared by a hospital pharmacist and then diluted into a bag and then the patient's sitting for hours, those hospital pharmacists, if the two vials that the pharmacist has to prepare, aka taking more inactives to dilute the original drug and then put it in a bag, that requires them to fully gown up, to get it Mm. under a hood, 
and it takes a lot of time and effort. We did a lot number of cancer drugs where we took two vial products and manufactured them into a single vial and formulated them to a mm. single vial. So it saved a lot of pharmacists time and energy. And you could price that at not generic level, but also not brand level, like at a healthy premium over generics, because it does allow the pharmacist to save more time prepare more drugs, and ultimately get more people into the infusion center to receive chemotherapy. A new year is full of surprises, but one thing is always predictable. Postage costs go up. Stamps.com gives you crazy discounts of up to 89% off USPS and UPS services. So when postage goes up, your business will barely notice the change. Stamps.com is like your own personal post office, wherever you are. You can even take care of orders on the go with the mobile app. No lines, no traffic, no waiting. Schedule package pickups, automatically find the cheapest and fastest shipping options, and seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. There's even a supply store where you can stock up on mailing supplies, labels, even printers. Stamps.com has been indispensable for over 1 million businesses just like yours. All you need is a computer or phone and printer. Take a chunk out of your mailing and shipping costs this year with Stamps.com. Sign up with promo code PROGRAM for a special offer that includes a four-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's stamps.com code PROGRAM. With LinkedIn Jobs, we tap into a network of more than a billion professionals to help you find quality professionals quickly and easily for any role you need. Marketing wizards? Found them. Software engineers? Found. That project manager I could never seem to hire? And found. LinkedIn Jobs quickly matches your roles with candidates with the right skills and experience. In fact, 86% of small businesses get a qualified candidate within 24 hours. Post your first job for free and get started at linkedin.com slash spoken. That's linkedin.com slash spoken. Terms and conditions apply. So that company, Cydos, we we developed, at one time we had 40 ongoing projects under development with partners. We never raised capital for that, but we did everything through co-development deals. We have five of those products out on the market and being market leaders, which is really exciting. And then um, I call my father a triple threat of drug development. The man can formulate right IP that gets granted and do commercial scalable formulations. Anything is easy to formulate at a very small lab scale. It's very hard to produce in the tens of thousands of vials per batch scale. So that is like the story of our work. How I got in is in 2009, it's a couple years out of college, I had started my career at Cisco Systems and I was selling IT to pharmaceutical companies. Mm -hmm. And after the first year, I was like, I really want to be in pharma. Like supporting as a tech vendor is not really my thing. And I don't think tech is my thing. I think it is. I was more and more interested in what my father was doing. I was helping him update his decks and write his reports. So finally, he's like, enough is enough. You need to come on board. We have too much work that we can't handle. And I realized how little I knew in those first few years. So I spent the first two years just being a sponge. I would sit and work from some of our partner companies for months on end to just not only get caught up on what the programs we were working on together was, but to learn the various areas of development of industry and get hands-on with them. So I spent a lot of time doing more project management and operations work, spent a little bit time shadowing our manufacturing folks, because to me, that was such a pivotal part of our work of making sure something could be manufactured at commercial scale before we licensed it, that I wanted to be able to 
have a bit stronger knowledge base in that. But ultimately, I found my home in business development and out licensing a lot of our programs ourselves and identifying new ones to develop. So we spent how many years? Six years at Cytos doing all of the things, out licensing a number of our programs. And then a couple years later, my father and I decided to do one last thing, which was develop injectable aspirin. And we did that under a new company called Roshan, named after my son. (laughs) Oh, really? Yes. We really believe in keeping it all in the family. That's amazing. I love that name. And funny enough, my mom actually works in the pharmaceutical industry as well. But I've got to admit, I like have very little understanding of exactly the whole process of how Mm -hmm. a drug gets created. Can you really like simplify this down for me? Like what is the 101? Like how do drugs get invented and what's the process so that they end up behind like the counter of a CVS or even on the just like on the shelf? Like I'm trying to think of something that I take regularly, like an Advil. Like, okay. who has this idea, then how do they turn it into that little pill? How does it get put in the bottle? How does it get on the shelf? Yes, that's a great question. And since we're going to use that as an example, we're going to talk about the class of drugs that are called small molecules, which is basically your Advils, your Adderalls. Oh, wait. Your aspirins. These are all not very similar drugs, are they? It's a class of molecules. So these are just small, basically, think about an organic chemistry textbook. If you open up and see like two hexagons kind of smooshed together with some lines outside of it, that's that class of molecules. (laughs) Something like an insulin is a biologic or a whole. So that manufacturing and development process is very different. So for simplicity's sake, because that's my knowledge base, we'll stick with small molecules. Perfect. What happens is you have the drug discovery group which are just thinking of what about this? What about this? And literally smashing molecules together to see, one, can we create a molecule? And two, what kind of therapeutic effect would it have? So they're being analyzed in like blood cells and just seeing what's happened when you're in blood. And anything that shows some sort of activity move on into then a more specific screening of what is happening and if the blood is spiked with something else like a disease, like whatnot. Like if it's treated as if this blood has cancer, what does it look like? This blood has hypertension. What does it look like? To treat to see if it can be screened and say, this looks like a promising candidate. Now can we scale it up into it's like that active ingredient, can it be scaled up? And can we formulate something around it to a meaningful dosage form? So any candidate that moves from drug discovery moves into formulation development. And that's where people like my father spent time taking a look at these molecules, understanding their chemistry further and how they act in the body based on that early research and developing one how high can we get this concentration to go? How high do we need it to go based on the disease state? And what are the inactives we're using to solubilize it at the right concentration and stabilize it? Because FDA requires you to have a minimum 12 months shelf life Mm, on a product before they'll authorize it. So doing that work at a small scale, but as things move into being more promising, you'll then say, can we manufacture this at the five liter scale for it to be able to move into in parallel as manufacturing scale up happens non-clinical development which is animal studies so okay so you start with basically people throwing spaghetti against the wall of like hey like you know what what can we make Mm -hmm. then you have the actual foundational point where they're like okay like can we make this in like small batches does it sort of kind of work and then you move into animal studies and there's a lot of work between the non-clinical group and the formulation development group to say this like worked too well or this worked too much and it killed everything or this we saw 
no effect? And can we tweak things to get the right concentration? So concentration is kind of of the active molecule is kind of determined with these. So there's a lot of collaboration. And with that, the manufacturing, early manufacturing team is also working with the form dev group on making sure, can we start to scale this? What are the complications? Do we need to change the formulation because of issues we found in scale up? And so once you have promising animal studies and you've also done it in usually two species, a rodent and a non-rodent species, and you've identified some kind of, this is what we think the dose would be into humans, and this is what the intended effect is that we want to see, you move into phase one. For the most part, phase ones are done in healthy volunteers. Now, cancer is the exception, mm-hmm. but it's mostly phase one is to design what is the actual dose of this product and is it safe? Mm-hmm. And that's a thing that most people don't realize. FDA's first priority is safety overall, then efficacy, then does it work. So, so it's don't kill your don't kill the people taking this, then does this actually work? Don't kill and do no harm to the right. people okay. who are taking this as well. But phase one studies are also short studies. So sometimes we don't see the harm like in a product like Avandia until after a product has been out on the market. So I did do want to level set there that this is also not by any means a perfect process. But if it was perfect, we would have no new drugs. Right. Once you have a successful phase one where you've identified the dosing regimen, the dose, you go into phase two, which goes into actual patients to say, does this work? And you might even try a couple different doses in phase two to determine what your actual final dose is. Phase three is the big study to say, does this pass various endpoints that we have established with FDA. There's a primary, which is like, this is the determinant at this levels to say this works or doesn't work. There's also secondary endpoints that are also utilized to measure other parts of safety. To say, is this making an impact on a secondary reaction, et cetera, that might affect patient health or patient safety. So those data is also important, but the goal is to meet your primary endpoint. Depending on the kind of drug and whatnot, these could be studies that go into thousands to tens of thousands. Or for rare diseases, they're done in much smaller things. So I can't say there's like a end-all be-all yeah. number for a phase three. It really depends on the, the disease and the indication and also what's already out there. And then if you meet your endpoint, you've manufactured to commercial scale, and in order to find for your approval, you have to manufacture three separate batches and have one year stability on said batches before you can even file your application. Mm. And this isn't any test ones. These are brand new batches. So while you're going through non-clinical and clinical development, manufacturing is working on scaling up the manufacturing process. You'll start at a five liter, then usually a 15 liter. Average batch size, I would say, is a 50 liter. 45 to 50 liter, and you're going to do a lot of batches. You're going to do a lot of practice runs before you're ready to say we're ready to go into our manufacturing. And there's so many other subworks that I will, subprojects you have to do from making sure the tubing is safe and isn't leaching, the filters, the vials or the presses you're using for the pills, bottles, and container closure integrity tests. It's a lot, it's a lot of work. And I love the manufacturing people I've had the opportunity to work with. So say you do all that, you put together your submission, file with the FDA, and you can wait anywhere from a year to three years on do they approve or not. And there's ongoing conversations. They might come back with questions. Usually you know it's a good sign when in the couple months left on your PDUFA or the date you're supposed to hear a response, they're asking questions about labeling and Mm. whatnot you know it's a good sign. But everything gets considered. Like for the pills, it's what's the color, what's the shape, 
Could this be confused with anything else? Then brand name is another thing. Is it unique enough? Does it not resemble anything else out there? And now brand brand names for pharma drugs are so like insane now yeah. because there's just so many. So that's its own process. So it is a really long, cumbersome process to get to an initial candidate to FDA approval. And it can take on average, you know, we work in reformulating existing drugs so we're able to shave off some time. It still takes us about eight years for novel drugs like that. It would take anywhere from 10 to 20 With LinkedIn Jobs, we tap into a network of more than a billion professionals to help you find quality professionals quickly and easily for any role you need. Marketing wizards? Found them. Software engineers? Found. That project manager I could never seem to hire? And found. LinkedIn Jobs quickly matches your roles with candidates with the right skills and experience. In fact, 86% of small businesses get a qualified candidate within 24 hours. Post your first job for free and get started at linkedin.com slash spoken. That's linkedin.com slash spoken. Terms and conditions apply. So, you know, I get that this process is pretty long. It's arduous. It's time consuming. And I want to mention the elephant in the room. This whole thing sounds incredibly expensive. You are paying for these people to actually do the research. You're paying for the machinery. You're paying for all of these test batches and then making like the labels and like all of this stuff. And I get why pharmaceutical companies need to charge money for their drugs. But why are drugs so expensive these days? I want to talk about this in kind of two different ways. You have the brand new drugs. And right now, let's take Ozempic as an example. And Wegovy and your GLP-1 antagonists, because that's what's trending right now. These were expensive and hard drugs to develop and manufacture. And there's only a, there's three companies that are really the owners of insulin and the diabetes, Sanofi, Novo Nordisk, and Eli Lilly. These are the people who are the juggernauts in the diabetes and now obesity space, because we have seen a linkage between the two, though I would argue it's also still not definitive quite yet. So you have the best-in-class scientists working there. And think about that whole process I told you about. Many products fail. Most products fail up until then, up throughout various parts of development. Some fail in formulation. Some fail in the animal studies. Some fail in phase one. Some fail in phase three, where tens of millions of dollars have already been deployed in the development. So I'm not saying that it's not that drugs are not worth a cost. However, what frustrates me is when drugs that are old and genericized because companies in the generic space act a little differently. They are more aggressive on what has been the most profitable branded drugs. So you usually have a huge like onslaught of generics available once a product comes off patent and then prices drop immediately. But then players start leaving the market because they go, well, we can't make enough of a margin to stay in. And then there's less competition. Which leaves one on the market. And if there's one on the market, it's basic economics, they get to dictate price. And that's why you've seen the slow, steady increase. And then sometimes in the case of Martin Shkreli, like the explosion of price on these only one available drugs. And now generic drug development is still complicated. And it takes years and millions of dollars to for a generic to enter the market. So even if you wanted to say, oh, I am go- I want to develop an, a generic of Adderall because it's out of it's out of stock, it's unavailable in a lot of places, and I want to help the people who need this drug, you're still looking at at least three to five years before said drug could actually be on the market. So it's not so, so simple as 
just manufacture more. Supply chain management is based on what are we making money on as well as what is needed. That's so hard because if you have like a rare disease with a very niche drug that you happen to need, it's not necessarily in a pharmaceutical company's best interest to make that, right? Like it's it's more in someone's best interest to make a drug that a bunch of people have problems and need. That's a big point. And there are a lot of drugs that actually meet different indications. And so, yeah, a pharma company, when they're planning their manufacturing, are going to say, what are our most profitable assets? Sometimes it's those that have many indications. And therefore, you know, if one indication is starting to lag and a new drug has come on the market, that that's not making market share. You have market share in other areas. For some, it's, yeah, we were one of the three generic Adderall manufacturers. We weren't making enough of a margin on that. So we're going to focus our efforts on the pro- the drugs that we are manufacturing that have be- better margins and are also in supply and in needed. But the problem is, is we don't have much conversation or nearly enough, one, transparency and two, collaboration between physicians and the pharmacists who are dispensing these drugs and prescribing them, industry and FDA. And I wish we would find a way to work together to make sure drugs don't go into shortage. There's no reason for, in this day and age, and with a global biopharma industry that is so productive. I mean, we take a look at the, how the COVID vaccine rolled out. That's a clear example of we we can do we this. We can do it. <laughs> we can do this. And we should actually take that model and expand it to other drug states and to make sure there's never a drug shortage problem. Right. And what are your top three or four tips to help regular everyday people working hard for their dollars save money on the medications that they might need? So I would say I really love what Mark Cuban is doing Mm. with his cost plus drug pharmacy because it's the first time I think you're seeing transparency of what are the pharmacy benefit managers buying this drug at from the distributors because the way his pharmacy is structured, everything is out of pocket. But you're just paying their cost plus 15%, which I think is a very modest upcharge to handle the processing and delivery of your totally. these drugs to your home. And they're very transparent about what's in what what are what's in shortage versus what's available. That I really see that as a model for how we can move forward. So I would say always check the price against that and just look it up what cost your drug plus costs. drugs by Mark Cuban. If you Google it. It'll be the first thing that pops up. Exactly. GoodRx is another great platform that allows you to check the prices of your prescriptions based on your insurance and the pharmacies nearby. Remember, what you get charged for a drug depends on a couple things. Your insurance plan, or if you don't have insurance, pharmacy you're going to, and listen, like whatever the distributors and whatnot, as drugs have gone in shortage, they get more expensive. So you have that macroeconomic element that is out of your control. But GoodRx gives you some visibility of making sure you can kind of price check and see what the best price is. I would also say sometimes, and this is sad, generics do not behave equivalently that a branded drug does. So your pharmacy might put you on a generic without you realizing it. So if you know you're sensitive and you've had a bad experience, make sure you're asking for the branded drug and going to a pharmacy that doesn't and make sure your physician is putting a note if you really need the branded version. Because sometimes generics don't simply just don't act the same. Their inactive ingredients might be a little different and it reacts differently in your body. And To kind of take a step back, most drugs that are widely available now where the clinical development was in the 90s were largely tested on white men. Mm. So if you're a woman or you're a woman of color with different – Like us. Like us. 
But like the side effect profile could be different or more extreme based because of who we are, our size, our own genetics, and et, et cetera. So I would be careful to also make sure of what your sensitivities could be and don't be afraid to advocate for yourself. I love that. That is such excellent advice. And to your point, you mentioned generics not necessarily behaving the same way as branded drugs. I, unfortunately, like many, have skin issues. I have eczema on my arms. And even though I was told I would grow out of it at puberty, I am now 29 and still have adult acne. It is infuriating. And the steroid that my dermatologist prescribed me got sent to the nearest, like, Walgreens, whatever. It Easy enough. But for my topical acne retinol, I've tried generic retinols, and they are so drying. My skin literally looks like, you know, I'm a mummy, Mm -hmm. and, like, it starts to peel off. And there is a branded version. I don't know if I'm even allowed to say this, but, like, Altrano. It seems to be quite a bit better at moisturizing while also doing what a retinol is supposed to do. And they said that they were going to send it to a specialty online pharmacy. And allegedly, I was told that this would save me money. Can you explain, like, specialty online pharmacies? Like, what are the capsules and the integras of the world? Like, how are they different than, like, a CVS or a Rite Aid? They're different in a couple of ways. So I would, one, remind you all that a lot of the major pharmacy chains, your CVS, Walgreens, whatnot, also have their own pharmacy benefit managers where they're negotiating with your insurers on what price they're buying these drugs for and what price, based on your insurance, that person will pay. Mm -hmm. And really, they're looking at can we push the cheapest drug so we can get the best margin, Mm. ultimately. In the case of, you know, yours, the generic retinol didn't work the same as the branded one. And I'd say that's also because inactive ingredients have their own side effect profiles. Like we have done screening experiments in some of our formulations where this is allegedly the exact same excipient, but from different vendors, it behaves differently. So strange. And so I'm going to say for you, potentially the excipients or the inactives in the generic retinol might not just be as filtered as well or as strong of his grade or just from a higher quality vendor as the branded one is. And that could be a factor. Not saying definitively, but (laughs) that's how my brain was thinking when I was hearing you talk about your experience with retinols branded versus generic. These virtual pharmacies are focused purely on dispensing the best drug for the patient and getting you what exactly you were prescribed. So their margins are structured a little bit differently, but because they don't also don't have the real estate footprint that your big mm. three pharmacies do, they're able to focus on patient service and getting you the exact drug that you need. And so specialty pharmacies, in your case, there are ones you have hims and hers that are focused on, these telehealth companies are focused on very specific indications. You know, if you're just focusing on buying one kind of class of drugs or focusing on one indication and offering excellent patient service, that is a way of just leveraging being best in class and being able to pass savings on to the patient that way as well. That's so smart. I didn't even think about how much those pharmacies that are brick and mortar must be paying in real estate in places like Miami or LA or, you know, SF or New York. And these online pharmacies, they're like, oh, I can just be like a random, you know, corporate office. Mm -hmm. And it's a lot cheaper than having a whole sidewalk corner. Mm -hmm. That is crazy. And let's talk about the most annoying part of this whole process. Why is health insurance so confusing? (laughs) 
<laughs> I mean, this is a low. So zoom out. I want to talk about healthcare in America, which I call a very expensive disease management system. Remember that this industry in the United States is a $2 trillion industry that employs a, over 10%. I think the number is around 15% of our workforce. That's a lot of people. That's, that's a crazy number. It's a crazy number, and that's a lot of money. So in its current permutation, I would say that the leaders of our healthcare industry are saying we are too big to fail because if we try to consolidate or flatten some of the layers in our distribution chain or whatnot, those are a lot of people without a job. Mm -hmm. And so transitioning to something like government-sponsored healthcare in a country like ours that where healthcare employs so many people and is such a huge contributor to our GDP and our nation's bottom line, it's not so quick as to say Medicare for all. However, what's working isn't working. And I do think the very unsexy things like subsidies to expand Medicaid in states strengthening the Affordable Care Act instead of fighting it. It's here. It exists. Let's improve upon it and build upon it stepwise. And the last thing I would say is I would like to see the government be more aggressive at being the biggest procurer of drugs and leveraging the, the distribution system we really cobbled together during the COVID pandemic in terms of distributing vaccines with a special health focus on rural and healthcare deserts areas to make sure those meds get to everyone who needs them. Don't say government can negotiate price. Instead, be the biggest procurer and negotiate price that way. I think that would be very effective on the drugs that we're talking about that are in shortage but are extremely necessary. There's no reason why there shouldn't be an FDA-approved version of cisplatin on the market at any given time, and that we're offering special approval or dispensation to a Chinese manufacturer that hasn't filed with FDA because the one manufacturer that had FDA approval that was still selling the product got shut down by FDA. Like We shouldn't be in this problem for certain classes of drugs. So I would like us to see, be more aggressive, the government be more aggressive at buying a lot of the drugs that are so needed to make sure they're not in short supply, to guarantee steady stream of manufacturing. And then because you are buying at such a massive scale, you can negotiate on price. So you you said a word that I hadn't necessarily heard before, but I've seen like other versions of this. You said essentially like a pharmaceutical desert or healthcare healthcare desert. healthcare desert. So I've heard of the concept of like a food desert where mm -hmm. somebody has to drive 100 miles just to get to their nearest grocery store. Can you talk to me about a healthcare desert, what that is, where we find it in the country, where we see it across the globe and what exactly that means? Yeah, absolutely. So in counties, especially rural counties in this country, you might have one doctor, one single family yeah. medicine doctor serving three different counties. Mm. That doctor doesn't have the gynecological like expertise, save one rotation from medical school, to serve people with uteruses in their ongoing gynecological care or obstetric care if they become pregnant. These sometimes don't, you don't even have dentists. Independent pharmacies are usually the only ones serving that area. Pharmacists actually have incredible training in terms of educating patients and understanding the right kind of meds they might need. But that's in very short supply if you're serving three whole communities. Right. So when I think about healthcare access deserts, it is places like these. So I would like to see us bolster, you know, mobile medical clinics to be able to have healthcare services provided around these rural areas to bring dental care, uh, visual care, 
basic medical care, primary care, but then also the specialized care like obstetrics and gynecology or cardiology, endocrinology for people with diabetes. You know, when we think about the rise of chronic disease and what you said at the beginning, now 70% of Americans need a prescription drug. Every day. Every day. One, are they getting the drug? And two, are they seeing their specialized physician often enough to make sure the drug is having its intended effect? Can we go back to that? Why do you think so many people now need a prescription drug every single day? (sighs) (laughs) You guys, HIPAA literally is like, oh my gosh, where can we start? There's a lot we don't know because we simply do not have the resources or choose to invest resources that we do have in kind of how the change in lifestyle in America, especially from like the 70s to modern day, has affected our genetics, our epigenetics. I will say I want to dispel everybody of one myth that we have a healthcare system. We do not. (laughs) We have a disease management system. And on top of that, the role of a physician is not to think about your health and well-being, it is to treat, is to diagnose and treat. Mm. That is what they are trained to do. So like doctors are literally meant to like fix what's already broken, not prevent you from getting broken. Exactly. And so so it is really sad. And doctors will be the first to tell you that they wish that this wasn't their job as well. Nurses would be the first to tell you that they wish they had the time to talk about the lifestyle changes and have the bandwidth to monitor lifestyle measures before needing to prescribe drugs. But that is the case. That is how they are also compensated is how many patients did I see today because I can bill that to insurance. How many prescriptions did I write today because I can bill that to insurance. How many procedures did I do today because I can bill that to insurance. You have to think about the economics of how these people who have put themselves in significant debt to receive this training can pay back said debt and also make a living. And doctors also have significant malpractice insurance. So that's another cost that we don't think about as patients. But they're thinking about is how do I pay my insurance to make sure if I get sued, I have some coverage. So it is a complicated problem. I think simplicity looking at we have a disease management system and this is what the workers, the frontline workers are designed to do, puts it into perspective. So what I would say where I see obstacles, I also do see opportunities. The rise in, I mean, I follow, I love TikTok and I love Instagram <laughs> and I feel like all I follow are dietitians and f- financial folks like yourself <laughs> because I want to be rich and I want to be healthy. Mm-hmm. And so that is my MO. I think it would be wonderful to see how we could scale nutrition nutritionist access to the bulk of Americans and especially at the really youngest ages. Like I do believe nutritionists should be overlooking school lunch programs to making sure meals are balanced. They're not just the cheapest. Mm -hmm. And to start establishing a great baseline for health at that stage. I also think when you think about the most vulnerable people in this country with food deserts, how do we make sure we have fresh and healthy food accessible and available and free if needed to these communities versus the um, preservative-filled, ready-shelf-stable food that typically is distributed in food pantries and through or covered via SNAP benefits. So there are a lot of things we can do, but I do think we need to start building up an industry that is focused on wellness and the actual health of people outside of our healthcare system and build it from the ground up and build it for the most vulnerable people in mind first because when we take care of them, everybody gets taken care of. I love that. And it sounds like, you know, 
the big takeaway here is it's unfortunately at every step of the healthcare system, everybody has essentially misaligned incentives. The incentive is not to cure you and keep you healthy forever. It's to treat issues that you're already having. Mm -hmm. And listen, I know you're in the industry and there are very few, in fact, no industries that are completely perfect under uh, you know, capitalism, because there's no such thing as conscious consumerism under capitalism. But I would love to just have this episode wrap up with your take on how the pharma industry can improve for the future for the next generation. Different parts of the industry are really best in class at different things. Your big pharmas are not developing mm-hmm. much anymore. They're acquiring. Mm. The little guys like us and other startup companies are the ones focused on making those new discoveries or making things better. So I think the first thing we need to do is have better collaboration. I mean, the thing is that, sadly, the types of drugs we do need more of, generics and improved versions of existing drugs, don't get the kind of venture capital funding or grants that we need to get to a scale where we can get a license or take it to the market. And that's unfortunate. So I would like to see funding kind of widen its scope and not just be like, I need to be able to see a 10 to 12x in five years, but to create new benchmarks to meet the problems we already have. And for FDA to come in and offer accelerated paths for drug shortage products and strengthen the 505B2 program, which is the pathway for approval for improved versions of existing drugs. Hmm. The second I would say is I would like to right now dispel the notion that somehow price controls are going to delay innovation or reduce innovation because that is the line big pharma and big biotech say. And I can definitively say none of y'all are really developing anything. You're acquiring and taking things through late-stage development, but you are not the inventors of said cutting-edge stuff. And some of these organizations are also bloated and inefficient. In the time it took my dad to develop certain drugs while he was at Glaxo, he's developed three times the number through formulation to approval on his own. And so I would like to see just because something doesn't have the massive profitability that we maybe realign our expectations and focus on life cycle management and improving the existing drugs. Pharma is one of the only industries who doesn't do that the way tech and food and everything else, even fashion and whatnot do. So we get a new iPhone every year. Why shouldn't we be improving on existing medications every year? And truth be told, like we think about we don't have new sunscreens approved by FDA in over 15 years. Meanwhile, Europe and Asia have approved through their regulatory authorities better sunscreen filters that protect the sun. Why are we so regressive in that, especially when you consider the high standard that Asian countries especially have? There's no reason why FDA doesn't do like a quick review and say, yes, we authorize these, come onto the market because... One, reduction of skin cancer. I'm very heartened to see everybody being aggressively talking about wearing of sunscreen these days. But two, what good does wearing sunscreen do if you don't have access to the best new sunscreens at your local pharmacy or via Amazon that you can trust and is not buying through a reseller that you may or may not know their validity. So that's but one example of it. But I think like there are where I see obstacles, I also see opportunities, both in the my narrow world of drug development, but also in the healthcare system overall. And particularly, let's start building a separate system that's actually focused on health and scaling that. I love that. Thank you so much for your time today. Thank you. 
Thanks for tuning in to this week's episode of Net Worth and Chill. If you like this episode, make sure to leave a rating and a review and subscribe so you never miss an episode. Got a financial question you want answered in the future? You can leave me a voicemail or text me at 908-858-3410. Make sure to follow me at Your Rich BFF across social media for even more relatable financial content. Special thanks to my team at Audioboom as well as Range Media and WME. See you next week. Bye!